So I want to start by reading a very familiar passage. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands. So for them, there is cultivation of the mind. So this luminous reality of the mind, how things are, is often in practice quite naturally um, visible, not exactly the right word, experience. It's accessible. It's not something that's foreign to us or hard to come by. And in times when the mindfulness is steady or strong, in times when concentration is quite steady, practicing metta, this luminous quality, this luminous nature of mind may be quite readily, we just know it, you know, as part of, it is what we are. We may not even be thinking about it. We may not, oh yes, there's the luminous nature of mind. It's just so essentially true. But the interesting part that I want to talk tonight about this passage is the understanding that at times, this, sometimes a lot of times, this luminous quality is colored over, is hidden by the attachments, by the habits of mind that visit it. And when we don't understand that these are just passing, conditioned experience, habits of mind, that's when we tend to give up. You know, I lost it. I'm just slogging through, it's over, I can't get it back. And that's when there isn't cultivation. But knowing that the luminous nature of our mind cannot be really touched, no matter what may be visiting, and how long it may be staying, and how completely identified we are with our visitor, knowing that the true nature, the luminosity, is not touched, that's what gives us the, uh, that understanding gives us the inspiration, the motivation to cultivate our mind, to develop our mind, to really purify the mind. And so what I really want to talk about tonight is how this really essential aspect of our path, what I've been, in my own mind, I've been calling lately, purifying our inner landscape, you know. And sometimes it may feel like we've been an awful long time slogging through trying to purify this inner landscape. And a sense of the luminous nature of the freedom of mind and heart may seem not even a remote memory, but, you know, some unattainable imagination experience. So sometimes in practice it happens that we can be visited quite strongly by aspects of the habits of our mind, the uh, particular patterns of our inner psyche, our particular karmic knots. And sometimes we get so either lost in them or so familiar with them that we get really bogged down and uh, 
sati mindfulness practice doesn't, for that moment, not forever, but for that moment or for some little while, may not seem to be quite buoying us up enough. We can get really um, contracted, bogged down, lost, you know, losing our motivation, as I talked about a couple of weeks ago. And this quality of brightness of heart, of mind, brightness of citta, same word means heart and mind, can seem really far away. And even though we're practicing our meditation very sincerely and steadily, it's like we just get kind of more and more contracted, farther and farther away, and it gets harder to practice. So what I want to talk about tonight is really reminding you all, this is nothing any of you don't know stuff that we all know very well. But to remember that cultivation of mind, bhavana, our meditation practices, whether it's the mindfulness practice or samadhi practice, metta practice, it's embedded, bhavana, in a whole path that the Buddha taught. It doesn't stand alone. It can't stand alone. And there are times even deep in a meditation retreat, as well as, of course, in our daily life, when it can be very useful to actively, consciously call in some other aspects of the path in the specific service of brightening our mind and heart, of lightening it, of bringing in again the inspiration, the access to the luminous nature. Sometimes in retreats particularly, we can get so focused really sincerely on our mindfulness that we get incredibly grim. You know, and I I missed three steps. I missed, I have to go back and do it again. I have to, I'm missing so much, you know, and it's like you're about to explode. And somehow... The uh, incandescent, luminous, empty nature is a little bit missing in that moment. And so just in a very light way, knowing that we can call unconsciously some of the other aspects of the path. So this purifying of our inner landscape, you know, coming face to face with our psychic patterns, our karmic knots, is a huge and very profound work of the path. Sokni Rinpoche wrote once, it's talking about our particular psychic patterns or knots. It's the cage we have created for ourselves, out of our emotions and our reaction habits, out of our sense of me and other. And in this cage, here we sit, day in and day out. And on retreat, it can really feel like that, can't you? Just, you know, in some cage of wanting, some cage of judging, some cage of fear. And it really can literally feel like here we sit day in and day out, you know, till maybe nobody here, but sometimes you just want to go screaming down the driveway, you know. So this is normal and an important aspect of practice. It may take the form of uh, really particular habits of mind that you recognize from your life, you know, that may come together with memories, with recognizing that how you're relating to something that's happening here is very much a pattern that you've carried with you in life and not seen so clearly, you know. It may be something like self-judgment, It may be reemergent of past traumas that's triggered by the silence or by something that happens here. It may be habits of anger. It may be something that you can't, that isn't so obviously a story from your life, but a, a pattern that we never recognize. For example, fear is a very common experience to come up deep in retreat and sometimes in very subtle ways. I mean, it doesn't feel subtle, and it's not like a huge panic, but it's fear arising at everything, at nothing. You know, fear to take a step, fear to take a bite, 
fear to do something wrong, just fear in relationship to nothing. That doesn't feel subtle, but actually it isn't a story from our life. It's just very, very deep patterns beginning to open up. Sometimes it may be guilt and sorrow over past actions. Sometimes we don't even notice it arising as a psychic knot, we'd say, or a karmic pattern. But it's really expressing itself in the way we're relating to the practice. So striving, for example, is a good example of that. Always trying to get things a little bit clearer, a little bit slower. Trying to get concentration a little bit stiller, you know. Or clinging ever so subtly to pleasant states and just not noticing it. I mean, you get, you get the point. That these things arise is not a problem in the present moment, right? I know you may, it may feel like a problem in the present moment, but that they're arising is really they're arising as a present moment result of previous karma, of previous actions, of the previous habits, the ruts that we've worn, the grooves we've worn in the mind, right? So self-judging, for example. If that's the way our mind has related to much of experience, much of our experience in our life, of course it's going to come up very strongly here. And of course it will come up when we're not so happy with what's happening. You know, It doesn't come up when we're somehow feeling things are going great. Or maybe it can, because then you say, well, now I'm being proud. Shouldn't be proud. You know, it can be endless. That is arising is due to past karma. What's purifying about it? That, of course, is all about how this pattern, this moment of mind, this moment of mental experience, how it's met in the present moment. And this, again, this is obvious. This isn't something new. But in our normal life, or even here, if we're not mindful, if we're kind of caught unawares by fear, by greed, by remorse over past actions, whatever. If we're caught unaware, then our response will tend to be whatever the habit pattern has been in our daily life, right? So if you don't like what's happening and your usual response is self-judgment, aversion, and you don't notice that. You heap more aversion on top of it, and you dig yourself into a really deep hole, and then you get just filled with aversion to everything. That's our normal, that could be our normal response. Or we ignore it altogether. We don't even know it's happening. Or we get really, you know, aversive to the pattern itself. I'm sick of this fear. I refuse to be fearful anymore. I will stop being greedy as of this moment i am letting go of all desire you know have you tried that one in either of these we don't see it we run with it or we're really aversive to it well we're still doing what sokni said sitting in our cage basically the pattern is driving the bus there's one of my uh, once when i was i was doing some therapy and the therapist was talking about different you know patterns just like this. And she said, you know, you have a pattern of really being negative to yourself. You need to recognize it with mindfulness, but you don't want to let the three-year-old drive the bus. And I thought, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, you welcome the three-year-old in. You don't hit it in the face, but you don't let it run the show. So, of course, when we're being mindful, when you simply meet the arising of fear, the arising of aversion, the arising of clinging, for the 10 millionth time or the first time, it doesn't matter. That moment of meeting it with mindfulness or with metta attitude or with concentration where you notice, say, the hindrance of wanting, don't give it energy, just come back to the breath and it goes, all of those are shifting the pattern in what you could say purifying 
the inner landscape, purifying the intention of mind, changing the groove, really, redirecting the habit. And so in that way, if you can trust that, it doesn't matter if this habit comes up 10 million times. Each time it arises and it's met with mindfulness, great. It's changing. It's purifying. It's not further inculcating the same habit. If you don't take it personally. So mindfulness is, is really always our first strategy. And when it's accessible, no matter how painful the pattern may be, no matter how familiar or how new and shocking, when that attention is able to just meet the experience kindly, steadily, without judging, without taking it so personally. Oh yeah, fears like this. Watch it arise. Feel how it manifests here and now. Notice that it passes. Just like the weather, conditions come together. Fear manifests, greed manifests, memories of the past and grief manifest. Kind, loving attention holds it in the present moment. The conditions change, it goes away again. And then the wisdom of impermanence, of not-self, of the unreliable nature of all of this, arises naturally. And with it, with it, again, the accessibility of knowing the luminous, untouched nature of the mind the greed, the anger, the fear, never touched that luminous nature, never can. We never have to be afraid of losing that. And when mindfulness is accessible to us, when energy is accessible, (coughs) we know that. That's what keeps us going, you know? But, this is all the prelude, now the rest is the but. But, for most of us, there are times when this brightness, this energy, this inspiration doesn't seem so accessible. And we may really be very sincerely calling up mindfulness moment after moment, but there's, there's no brightness, there's no lightness in the mind, in the heart. And I don't mean just for a moment or two, of course that's going to happen, but there's times when uh, we get so absorbed, really, so focused on the dukkha, the suffering aspect, the personal aspect, you know, identified with it, really, that that's all we can see. We get kind of caught in either the dukkha aspect or our reactivity (coughs) to it. And it's, you know, it can just feel like everything gets more and more and more compact and squeezed together and energy gets drained. And we really get very unbalanced, you could say, (coughs) in our perceptions to where we only see the dukkha, we only see the wanting, we only see the fear. You know, and there's nothing else seems to ever be happening, and it wears us down. It wears us down to where uh, we become, like in that uh, sutta that I read, like the unlearned person who doesn't know that the luminous nature of mind can't be touched by passing experience. We think it has been touched. We think all there is is this passing experience, and we kind of cave, you know, we can't keep going. And this is when it's really important to, it might take a moment of thinking, if you can spare a moment of thought here, to just uh, remember that bhavana is embedded in a path and consciously call on 
a few of the things I'll mention, whichever one's most accessible to you in a particular time, to consciously brighten and gladden the heart, to gladden the mind. Because really, it's a a bright, spacious mind and heart. It again allows kind of the touching of the way things are. It's not an avoidance of the patterns of mind, our psychic knots. It's not an avoidance of suffering. It's more an expansion that of consciousness, uh, an infusion of energy and inspiration that allows us to be with whatever's been difficult, but without being so identified, to be with it more from the place of freedom than to be with it from the place of reactivity. In some ways, to me, and I can't speak as a scholar, but from what I know about the Buddha's teachings and the various uh, practices he offered on his path, it's really a marvel how all aspects of the path are different ways of highlighting, different ways of cultivating the happiness of the luminous mind of non-clinging. You know? And when mindfulness and concentration aren't doing it, there's other ways that all work together in the same path to work towards again recognizing the peace of non-clinging that's always available. So to brighten the mind, that's why there's cultivation. We know that this is possible. So really, ultimately, both mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom arise out of a relaxed and happy heart and mind. It doesn't mean we're always happy. Don't definitely just have to say this. I know you know it, but I have to say it. It's not that, you know, if if you're doing this right, you go around grinning all the time, happy, 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 and suffering doesn't come. You know good and well, right, that the first noble truth is dukkha. I don't have to go into that, right? You all know it. Sometimes we get a little bit so focused on the first truth being dukkha that we forget that the brightness of mind gives us the strength and the emptiness at the same time to open more deeply. So this is where the Buddha, when he talked about right effort, the four aspects of right effort, half of it really speaks to this consciously cultivating happiness, brightness of mind. So I'll read you the four. This is in in one of those kind of complicated ways he says it, right? The first right effort is to awaken zeal for the non-arising of unwholesome states. Right? The second is to have zeal for abandoning unwholesome states that are already arisen. Now, that we're more familiar with. We're aware of greed, and we have zeal to abandon it. That does not mean aversion. That's another unwholesome state. We often get lost there. Now, but the third and fourth, there's zeal for the arising of unarisen wholesome states and zeal for the continuance and strengthening of arisen wholesome states. So in other words, it's not a manifestation of greed or avoidance when we feel that our heart and mind is really contracted and we're lost in fear and we can't really be mindful. It's it's a, a right effort to consciously cultivate some inspiration, to consciously call up seeds of happiness, of purity, of generosity. These are really helpful tools in our practice. And so that's uh, what I want to just point to for the rest of the talk, just remind us some of the things we can call up. Now, in cultivating zeal for the arising and continuance of wholesome states, 
of happy states, of states that, you know, help us abandon identification. Remember that the guiding principle, of course, is always wholesome states are not states of clinging. And sometimes we can get a little confused because a wholesome state is a happy state. Wholesome states do bring brightness to the mind. They can be, you know, memories of uh, generous deeds, memories or current experience of uh, non-harming behavior. Wholesome states are states of concentration, meditative states, strong um, mindfulness. All of those are helpful. Sometimes we get confused, especially, I'd say, when uh, strong, happy, blissful states arise in practice, you know, And they do feel very purifying, very wholesome, very enjoyable. And we'll tend to say, when you come into the interview, we'll tend to say, don't try to keep making that happen, you know, in some way. Don't hold on to it. But it's not that that doesn't mean the state isn't helpful, purifying, wholesome. But the cultivating wholesome states does not mean clinging. It's not self-referential. It's not about having a pleasant experience. It's about cultivating wholesome qualities of heart and mind that are, as the Buddha said, onward leading. Onward leading towards wisdom, to the wisdom of non-clinging, to the wisdom of not identifying, of not creating a stronger sense of me experiencing this far-out state. That's not the point. And I think you can tell the difference in yourself. Does the sense of me doing good get stronger? Then there's some clinging in there. Does the sense of just a happiness, a kind of a brightness, more of an expansion, an opening of the heart and mind, an inspiration get stronger? That's really helpful. That's really supportive. It's wholesome, and we don't need to shy away or be afraid of that. And sometimes that happens, and that's not so helpful. So that's why I just want to highlight a few of these. One, the first I want to mention, is usually said in terms of the, the way it's spoken about in the suttas, or the Buddha talks about it, is taking refuge. And that might, I, it might seem a little... Uh, foreign, or not so much the way we think, taking refuge. But if you think of it in terms of when you're having a really contracted time, actively bringing to mind, whether it's the Buddha, which in in Asian countries, the Buddha is very inspirational for people. That may or may not be true for us. But there may be a being, a teacher, someone who manifests some of the beautiful, wholesome, inspiring qualities of the Buddha that you could bring to mind. And someone mentioned today something that was a, a beautiful example of this, who someone who, who calls to mind the, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and he really inspires this person. She is specifically mentioning the sense that, and I've read this often too, of how he seems to meet each person, to treat each person really equally, really kindly, like totally present with each person that he talks to. And just contemplating that quality and what that would mean or what it would feel like inside to be that um, non-judgmental, to be that kind, to be that present, to be able to see you know, the beauty or the emptiness in each person that was really inspiring for that person. And that quality of inspiration gives us energy, gives us a brightness, really is very helpful. So at times to just reflect, and it's really like feeling it, not thinking about it so much, on the inspirational qualities, whether it's the Buddha or someone else. And and knowing that when we're reflecting on it, it inspires us because it's touching those same qualities in ourself. 
You know, it's not some abstract thought, or it wouldn't have that inspirational quality. Very helpful. And then more classic, well, not more classically, but to recognize that the classic formulation when the Buddha spoke about the breadth of his path, bhavana, mental cultivation, is always embedded in the trio of dana, sila, bhavana, generosity of moral, non-harming conduct and uh, the mental cultivation. And the more, it's funny, you know, the more I practice, the deeper and deeper is my appreciation for both Donna and Sila. I'm not saying, you know, I've got it down or anything. More the subtlety and the power and the uplifting qualities that uh, a real exploration, commitment in my heart and mind to Donna and Sila bring about. This gladdening the heart these beautiful factors. So I want to talk a little bit about Donna, a little bit about Sila. Just pointing for yourself to see what, what really uh, brings you this, this happiness, this gladdening, this brightness of heart. Generosity, as I'm sure you're well aware, you know, the Buddha talked about it all the time. Really, really essential beginning of the practice. And it's not just a should, you know, you should be generous, it's a good thing to do, it, you know, helps us let go, it's, I mean, all those things are true, but I think what I, I didn't, I didn't understand this so well until I spent more time in Asia, especially the last four four years when I've been spending more time in Burma, in, you know, a country where, um, and some people, <laughs> Donna and Sila, are really uh, kind of deeply rooted in some people in the country. Of course, in the government, that doesn't seem, I mean, it, it's, it's a paradox. It's very confusing. But to spend time with people who've grown up and are really committed in a, in a Buddhist culture, where it's more in the culture than, than here in this country, you know, I mean, people are generous in this country, no question. There's huge generosity. But there's a way the generosity, at least how I experience it, the way the generosity is expressed as an expression of happiness. As an, It's not that I should be generous in order to let go, but the act of generosity itself clearly brings and is accompanied with so much happiness of mind and heart, so much brightness of being that it's absolutely contagious. And it's a kind of a a teaching in the power of dana, of generosity, to really open the mind, the heart, beyond self-interest, to really open the mind and heart beyond the, the false sense of separation, that there really isn't so much sense of me taking care of myself, but this really powerful, powerful sense of the joy of being able to give. It's really, it's quite beautiful, but in, in, for me, when I just have to remember little acts of generosity that I've experienced either personally or I've seen happen in the last, any time I go to Burma, <coughs> The effect of the memory is it brings this real happiness to my heart. It really opens me past whatever particular concerns, self-interest concerns I may have, whether I'm on retreat, whether I'm off retreat. And it's not, it's not a thing of thinking it should feel that way. It's an absolute experience of it. I'll, I'll just give you little examples. Um, there's a million of them. There's a young woman, Steve Smith talks about her a lot. She's kind of a, a protege of Steve Smith, and he started meeting her when she was 16 or so. She's in her early 20s now. Pretty poor, really quite poor. Um, she got married a couple of years ago. 
when we went to see her this year, she had uh, just had her first child that died right after it was born, about a month before we came, and she was heartbroken, heartbroken, really, really upset, kind of depressed. And uh, she and her husband live with her husband's family. She doesn't get on very well with the mother. She's a really bright, lovely being, happy being, but having a hard time. And we would spend some time and talk, and we would try and do little things for her. We didn't do any huge thing, you know, this year. We'd try and bring little gifts, try and just listen, try and help in some way. At the end of the time when we were leaving, she came up to the monastery where we were staying. It was like, you know, she took a day off from work, and she came up looking for me and Michelle McDonald, the other teacher, and another woman who was managing the retreat. The three of us had spent, you know, some time with Chesu. And she had gone out and bought us each like a, a little beautifully, uh, a metal kind of vase, beautifully hammered tin, you know, one for each of us. Now, for someone like her, to go and buy three vases like that, it's huge, huge, you know? And then she took the day to come and look for us, to come and specifically find each one of us in our little huts, to give it to each of us, and she was so happy giving it to us. It's so beautiful. And, you know, and it's really learning that the other side of it is to receive with the same happiness, with the same non-separation. You know, my first years in Thailand, I would say, well, I, I have so much. Don't, don't, you know, waste your money on me. Save it for yourself. And it's so, I mean, that makes sense to us in our, in our Western way of thinking. But in terms of the qualities of open-heartedness, of freedom, of luminous mind, that is so churlish to say, no, take that back and sell it, you know, and make yourself a, a nice meal. You know, it just cuts the whole... Another time, another year, I was uh, with, with two friends, and we were riding in a pony cart back from another monastery to the monastery where we were staying. And uh, I was with Steve Smith and another friend who speaks Burmese, Western guy. And so, you know, we got the pony cart, we got in the cart, and we were argued with the driver about how much to pay in the usual way, you know, because he, he wants twice as much, and you argue him down, and we're driving back. And... Then he, he got to chatting with our friend who speaks Burmese. And at the time, there were two or three Western monks, Burmese monks, doing the retreat with us. And one of them had been living in this area in Sagain for several years. So the pony cart start, driver was asking, oh, do you know this monk? And he, oh, yes. And he said, I see him all the time. And he was doing an ascetic practice. He would never wear shoes, like for three or four years. One of these, that, that is an ascetic practice. And so our, our friend, the Western monk, came Adipa. He would do that. And the pony cart driver was saying to our family, I see him, and I feel so bad for him. He has no slippers. He has no shoes. And I think, I would like to buy him a pair of shoes, you know, and give him some shoes. It really makes me feel so bad that he does not have shoes, you know. And this is just like, you know, average people that you run into on the street. And it just... Notice how it can kind of brighten the mind. It gives a space beyond whatever particular little problem the mind is caught up in. It reopens us again to the luminous nature that isn't touched by whatever happens to be visiting. So you see, just hearing about generosity never mind practicing it ourselves. And it can be in our life. It can be here. It's not about, you know, now don't go around and start, you know, trying to find all kinds of things to do to be generous and drive each other crazy. Not that, you know. (laughs) But just to have the intention in small ways here in life. And even more, that you can actively Call up the memory of times that you have thought, said, or done something generous and see how it brightens the mind, how it brings spaciousness into the heart. 
It's really interesting, you know, how the Buddha set up his whole sasana, his whole teaching around generosity. The whole relationship of the ordained sangha, the nuns and the monks and the lay people, that they both were linked to each other through generosity, you know, so that the, the lay people depended on the generosity and, and still today. The monks and nuns depend on the generosity of lay people for their food every day, for their robes. And that's not like lay people having to pay at all. It's a way of really cultivating and developing the mind and heart of non-clinging. And remember that it's not a practice of renunciation that makes you miserable. It's a practice of happiness. The giving in itself is a source of huge happiness. And then... As well, the lay people depend on the generosity of the nuns and monks to really share their Dharma understanding, to teach and share their being and what they've heard and what they've learned really freely with anyone who wants to hear it. So that in both ways, this cultivation, this development of the heart of non-clinging is really you know, the central piece of the way of life that the Buddha, the Buddha taught and lived. And it's so different, you know, from the kind of sense of neediness, the needing to have enough to take care of myself, you know. I read um, a friend a few years ago was writing a, a thesis for a master's or a PhD, I'm not sure, on, an ec- on economics, and what she wrote it on, she was back in, in Burma and in the same village in Burma because you know she knew, she knew Steve and she could meet the Sayadaw and stay at this monastery and really explore. What she was exploring was Dana as a second economic system in Burma. And actually, because the Burmese economy is a total, complete shambles. I mean, it, it really... The government does not provide much of anything in the way of what even we think, you know, we almost don't even think about, you know, like roads, for example, building, whatever. And the dana, like dana that's given a lot of money, may be given to the monastery, may be given to the Sayadaw. And in my Western way, I think, oh, yeah, they really need another building. Somebody comes and gives money and says, we want another building built. And we think, oh, that's not what we need. People need food. People need this. But then that money for the building, the Sayadaw then hires the local people to do the building, and they go and hire local people to get the supplies and to bring in the food, and it's like really, it gets the whole economy going. It's all kept extremely local, and Donna is really kind of what runs the economy. The whole hospital there is run on Donna. It has nothing to do with any kind of government support. So, Donna, right? So just notice how in a moment of giving, even having the thought of giving, it brings a sense of of unity. It cuts away that feeling of separation. It just kind of seems to cut away the distance, you know. I think that's one of the reasons it's said that if you're having difficulty with somebody, give them a gift, you know. Because if we're really giving it, and in giving The focus is, of course, on the intention, just that open-hearted sharing. If you really give something with that clear, focused intention, the sense of separation, the sense of holding them as a problem in that moment, just for that moment, is cut through. It's really a powerful force. So intention is, of course, the key. And the other side that I also want to mention, of giving, is when we're on the receiving end, to really allow ourselves to consciously experience gratitude. And that can be, you know, gratitude in the moment of actually receiving, as when Chesu gave us the little vases, to really 
you know, not only say thank you, but to really feel, you know, the gratitude, the being touched, the appreciation, because in that way, as well, the sense of limitation and separation is gone in that moment. It really is a whole act. Something that I found really helpful on retreat when we're really not giving a lot of things and, and really staying in ourself is, as I said, to call up the, the seeds of memories of times you've been generous, but also to consciously open to gratitude, either for specific acts of generosity or just for what we have. I found this enormously uh, supportive when I'm on retreat and when I am really getting caught in some kind of negative pattern or dukkha, to consciously cultivate gratitude. Sometimes it's just hitting you in the face and it's beautiful and you, can, you, know, you don't have to cultivate it. But other times, and again, as some of you know, I, I tend to have an aversive type of mind, so I'm not like bounding through the place filled with gratitude all the time. That's not the way my mind works. But some years ago, at the end of the day, I was you know, getting into bed. I was on a long retreat. And it was one of those, you're getting into bed going, oh, thank God that's day over. That's a wipeout day. But maybe tomorrow, you know, mindfulness will be back. Have you ever had a moment like that? Going to bed, just go to sleep, and hopefully this will all be gone when I wake up. And it just kind of went through my mind, okay, it's gratitude. And it started out, okay, great. I'm, I'm really grateful for a bed. Mm-hmm. I'm really grateful, you know, I had three meals today, or two meals, or one meal, whatever you had. And the first three or four, it was grumpy, it was cynical, it was, yeah, sure, you know. But I just kept going, and it was like magic. (coughs) It didn't take long at all to where that brightness, that spaciousness, that gladdening of heart was real. And then things just started pouring out of my mind that I was grateful for. There's so much. Not a should, not, you know, you have so much, you should be grateful, not that at all, you know. But just things like the moon, the snow, being at peace, other people practicing. It just goes on and on. I don't, I don't need to make a list for you. And the effect is, again, that luminous, spacious purity of mind and heart, it's here again. It's always here, but again, that's, that's what's so obvious. That's what's so clear. It's really a, a wonderful thing. In fact, in uh, the last, since last March, I think, a friend and I started a, a practice that we'd heard about through someone else a practice, a daily gratitude practice, where at some point, almost every day, we email each other what we're grateful for that day. And it's, for both of us, it's been an amazing practice. And we're very different temperaments. She's a person that is always much more effervescent and upbeat and you know, you'd think is grateful. Both of us will come and we'll write, and we're really honest. So we might start out writing, I'm not feeling grateful for anything. I had a fight with my husband and this and this and that, you know, and she'll start out like that. But the intention in writing it, right, is to say what we're grateful for. So we don't pretend. Always. We just keep writing stream of consciousness, and it turns around. And sometimes we come and we already knew what we were grateful for. Sometimes we actively didn't know at all. But as we're writing, just that intention, it turns it around, and we always end really in a different state of mind, feeling grateful, feeling happy, touching again the infinite brightness, the infinite luminosity. It's really amazing, you know? And we keep saying this to each other all the time. Right now she's on retreat for a month, and I'll forget about it for a couple of weeks. And then yesterday... I was just kind of mumping around the house. And I thought, oh, I really miss the gratitude practice, you know? Why do I need to have someone to email to? You know? <laughs> Why can't I just think about it without that? But, you know, our minds get in a, in a habit. So 
gratitude, and that's really goes together with generosity. Sila, I want to also mention non-harming conduct. Because here, of course, whatever you think, just coming here, taking the five precepts in a really uh, committed way. Just if you just come and do retreat, and and even if it's just out of fear, you know, you you have to obey the precepts because otherwise people will see you and hate you, you know. It doesn't matter. Just not acting in harming ways. It brings, you know, the Buddha calls it the bliss of blamelessness. And he says that that, in terms of householders, you know, that the, uh, the bliss of blamelessness is worth 16 times the other happinesses that a householder can know. I don't know where he got 16 times, but that's what it said, you know, the, from debtlessness, possessing things in a wholesome way, these are the other happiness, the enjoyment of what is rightful, and the bliss of blamelessness. And that's a huge happiness, freedom from remorse, a real purity, spaciousness in our heart, in our mind, the contentment that is possible. You know how it is when you have one of those periods of practice, kind of life review where everything you ever did that was unskillful, that was unkind, that was thoughtless, that was cruel starts to come up. Have you ever had a time like that in, in practice? And sometimes it's really, you know, hard things that we did that are. Anyone would say, yeah, that was, you know, that was a little self-interested. Other times, it's happened to me and it happens, other people will come in and say, and they're like racked with remorse, really feeling awful about some incredibly subtle little, you know, negligent thing you said or didn't say to somebody, you know, 25 years ago, and you're racked with remorse for being unkind. This is a sign, obviously, that our heart and mind is getting much purer. But to see how much remorse and suffering can come, even from such a slight thing, then on the wholesome, supportive side, it's also true that a great deal of of uplifting can come from our non-harming thought, speech, and action. So just in the not doing of it, sometimes we don't really notice that. It's another thing we may not tend to consciously reflect on or consciously bring into awareness. We do it, you know, in the beginning of when when we're teaching metta practice. And we often say when you start in the beginning to start with yourself, to really direct the the wishes of metta to yourself, it's often suggested as a way to connect with yourself in a wholesome way, to see the good in yourself, you know. And it's often suggested to really contemplate the wholesome things you've done. Contemplate your morality. Contemplate your non-harming behavior. I don't know about you, but that's not something that I really sit down and do very often in my daily life. And it's often heard, you know, we, maybe not all of you, but I know many people I talk to in this culture, and myself included, it's so easy for us to focus on all the unskillful things we've done. I bet if I said make a list of unskillful thought, speech, and action, you could just start writing without, you know, any pause at all. You know, you wouldn't have to think and beat yourself. What, what have I done that's unskillful, you know? It's right there. Make a list of the really wholesome things you've done, refraining from harming thought, speech, and action. Sometimes that's a little harder. And sometimes we think, well, that's just being uh, egocentric, you know. But, you know, it's not. It's a source of freedom from remorse, actively contemplating our wholesome past actions is, can be, a source of inspiration and um, 
gladdening of heart and mind in the present moment. So that in a way, the, the memory of past wholesome deeds is like the result of past karma in the present moment. It's the fruition, the wholesome fruition of past wholesome deeds. I'll just give you a little spontaneous example. I remember it because it's so rare and it's pathetic that it's so rare. When I spontaneously remembered a wholesome thing that I had done many years ago. It's pathetic that that should be so rare, either the wholesome thing or the memory. I mean the memory. <laughs> I hope the wholesome thing isn't that rare. But it was a day when I, was, I, I used to work many years ago in a sheltered workshop in uh, North Carolina in not very good conditions with adult, uh, I don't know what the PC word is anymore. At the time, it was, it was adults who uh, were mentally handicapped. In a sheltered workshop, we had a very simple little, little task, like put two screws in a little plastic bag. And these are really pretty severely handicapped adults. But, and difficult, but there was a lot of love, and I really felt a lot of love for them. And I remember one day I came in, and there was just one after the other, just a series of connections and expressions of appreciation and love going both ways. And, and I mean, this was 30, I don't know, a long time ago. I don't want to say how long ago. And one day, the memory of this day just came in my mind, and there was so much happiness, just kind of welled up. And again, the sense of the luminous nature of freedom. It's not self-referencing. It wasn't about, oh, aren't I great? That doesn't feel luminous. That doesn't feel free. That feels more contracted. But it's the same as with generosity and gratitude. It just opens us up and gives the inspiration to then be with the difficult stuff. You know, whatever it is that's happening, it gives the inspiration to keep going. Freedom from remorse, our commitment to non-harming behavior. You know, it's not just I have to do this so I can get concentrated. It's really as well as Donna, as well as Bhavana, It's a path of happiness, a path of non-clinging, a path of freedom. Here and now, in the past, in the present moment, brightens our mind. And there's a sutta from the Buddha. I won't read the whole sutta, but he starts with, what is the purpose of skillful virtues? And he says that the purpose is freedom from remorse. This is to Ananda. Freedom from remorse is their reward. And it's one of these that keeps going. What's the purpose of freedom from remorse? Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose and reward. The purpose of joy is rapture. Purpose and reward of rapture is serenity. Purpose and reward of serenity is sukha, happiness. Purpose and reward of sukha, concentration. Concentration goes to knowledge and vision of things as they actually are. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are goes to disenchantment. Disenchantment goes to dispassion. The purpose and reward of dispassion is knowledge and vision of release. So in this way, Ananda, skillful virtues goes all the way up. Skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of our hardship, to freedom. That's pretty powerful. And it's something that we can really appreciate, really call up in the present moment when we need to brighten the mind, to gladden the heart, to find the energy to keep going. Okay, I don't have time to talk about, but I just want to mention that the practice of metta or any of the Brahma Viharas is as well a way to brighten the mind, gladden the heart. And it doesn't have to be to the point of absorption or jhana. Just some moments of metta can be very powerful 
in again expanding the perception beyond our limited, constricted self. This is uh, from the Buddha. If just for the lasting of a finger snap, a bhikkhu indulges a thought of metta, cultivates a thought of metta, gives attention to a thought of metta, such a one is to be called a bhikkhu, someone who's practicing, carries out the master's teaching, responds to advice. He does not eat the country's alms food in vain. What then should I say of one who makes much of such a thought? So we can all do that, a finger snap of a thought of metta. No matter what's going on, we can manage that. If you can't think of any good deeds of your own, the calling up just what you can be grateful for helps. Actually calling up good deeds of others, the generosity of others, like when I described the people in Burma, that also brings happiness. It's a way of seeing that we're not separate. So if you start spinning in, I never did a generous thing in my life, I never did a wholesome thing in my life, well then, Tune into that of others. It brings us the same open-hearted happiness. It's wonderful. And the last thing I'll mention then is, of course, the sense of the just holding the thought of our practice being not for myself alone, but for other beings. You don't have to even feel it, you know, but just holding that thought really, like I, I quoted Sokni the other night saying, you know, if you just have the correct motivation in your own experience, it turns into bodhicitta, into this vastness of motivation all by itself. So just This I found really helpful when I'm getting too self-involved in my practice, really spinning down, to just, at the beginning of each sitting, to start by taking refuge. This is a Tibetans, the Tibetans really advocate practicing like this all the time. Just start a sitting very consciously by taking refuge, and then uh, just for a moment, having the motivation of bodhicitta. You know, may my practice be for the benefit of all beings. That's all. Just saying, you don't have to feel it, but just inclining the mind and heart in that direction. It really does something. Then you forget about it. Just practice your session. And then at the end of the session, always they say to always complete it by dedicating the merit of the session of your practice to all beings. So again, you're, we're ending our sitting, our walking, our period of practice, with a conscious act of generosity, of connection to all beings. And that's quite beautiful. And then, as well, this is um, a very generous act, sharing our practice with all sentient beings. Then make for yourself a pure aspiration, because they say, the Tibetans say that, you know, this is a strong, really strong, generous act to share the merit of your practice with all beings. To then make an aspiration, that is focusing your own motivation. So, for example, I'm a, you know, we could all have a different aspiration. Say your aspiration is to awaken your mind and heart to liberation in this lifetime. You make that aspiration. It's a way, they say, it's very important because if you make the aspiration in combination with our wholesome actions of meditation and generosity, it just helps to sort of fuse the wholesome effects of our wholesome actions in terms of our aspiration. You know what I mean? So it's not, oh, I did this good thing and that means I'm going to get chocolate cake for lunch. You know, It's to really... Focus our intention, and then share it with all beings. So just in a little, just a very light way of taking refuge in the beginning, 
and sharing at the end and clarifying our motivation. So I think that's enough. Just find whatever way helps you brighten and gladden your own mind and heart. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.